Hey, deserving listeners, I have a question for you. Is racism a mental illness? Is it a, is it a mental illness, a mental disorder, to be a racist? It's an interesting question. And last week, I had never even thought about asking this question. I never thought about racism being a mental illness. But then I saw an article uh, that posed this question, and it got me thinking. So that's what I'm going to talk about today. Uh, according to the length of my notes, I'm going to take a guess and say it's going to be about an hour and a half deep dive on racism and out-group, in-group stuff, and what the debate is all about regarding whether or not racism is a mental illness. So that's what I'm going to talk about today. We're going to, talk, we're going to define racism as best we can. We're going to talk about what is, what is a mental illness. And I'm going to talk about the debate between whether or not racism is a mental illness, illness within the psychological and psychiatric community. And I'm also going to, at the end, I'm going to talk about uh, the fact that some people are proposing specific criteria for racism as a disorder in the DSM, and I'll provide those criteria. This is the Psychology in Seattle podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Kirk Honda. I'm a therapist and a professor. Before we begin talking about this, as, as an instructor, I always say, we're about to head into an area that, for all of us, creates anxiety. And so we could all do well by ourselves and by each other, including myself, if we all just take a deep breath and say, we're okay, we're safe, we're entering a zone of distress and of trauma and of you know, ugly conversations that we've been a part of in the past. And we're going to get triggered and we're going to have, um, you know, feelings. And, uh, and I'm going to say that this is not a, this is not a discussion with people. I I'm just, usually this is what I say at the beginning of discussions among students, but this is just me spouting. And, uh, I don't have any way to gauge your response to it. And if you're in the room with me, I'd, I'd be able to be like, oh, okay, I'm going too fast, or I said that word wrong, or something like that. And so we just have to, again, take a deep breath and say we're heading into some you know, extremely choppy waters, and the more calm and the more differentiated we are, the better this will go. And in my experience, if we don't remain calm, and we don't, or at least try to remain calm, then the you know discussion quickly spins out of control and we end up um, hurting other people's feelings and pushing people away and kind of ending the conversation. So, uh, you know, uh, I just I always just start conversations <laughs> with that little caveat. It's like we're all in this together. We all care about other people. We're all trying our best. We've all made mistakes. I've made mistakes. I will make mistakes in this episode. You know, feel free to politely point them out if you want to. And, you know, there's just no way to enter into a conversation about racism and other kind of isms without there being feelings and without there being mistakes. So uh, let's, let's just head into this conversation or this, you know, one-way conversation anyway with that in mind. Um, as a caveat to that, I will say that there's absolutely nothing wrong with getting angry 
there's nothing there absolutely there's absolutely nothing wrong with advocating or speaking up or being assertive that that's not what I'm not saying to not do that I'm just saying um well I hope you get what I'm saying okay so let's define racism racism is defined in many different ways and I'll provide just uh, some of the main ones at its most basic level racism is the belief that one race is better or inferior to another race white people in the south in the 50s many of them thought that they were overtly superior to black people meaning that white people are superior and black people are inferior you know that that's a common kind of example that we use, but really there's billions of examples that we can call from. I'm Japanese American. I'm half Japanese American, half European American. And the, I know the Japanese people, not in the United States so much, but, but much more uh, poignant of example of Japanese people in Japan, Japanese nationals that currently live in Japan have, have fairly, racist attitudes about non-Japanese people. They will, in general, on average, feel as though they're superior and that, say, Koreans or Chinese people or Vietnamese or Filipinos are, are inferior. So, again, it's not, this is not, this whole conversation is, is way bigger than the black-white thing in the United States. It's, uh, it's the black-white thing is a significant thing that we should all be talking about, but there, there are so many other examples and so many other ways in which humans are harming other people that are outside of that. Anyway, so, so one definition of racism is that it's the belief that one race is better uh, than another race. Racism also refers to different practices, different behaviors, uh, basically, uh, different kinds of uh, of ways in which we harm other people, like discriminating against them, or segregating particular groups of people, or persecuting particular groups of people, or murdering particular groups of people, or being biased against them, or stereotyping people, or dominating particular groups of people, or creating social practices and policies that marginalize particular groups of people. And each one of these things, these, these areas, these behaviors, these practices are vast and complicated and you know, would require their own episode each unto themselves. So I hope you know what I mean by discrimination and segregation and persecution and bias and stereotype and you know, social policies, governmental policies. Okay. There are many dubious assumptions within the philosophy of, uh, of racism. I'm referring to racism as a philosophy. Some people might have a problem with that, but uh, in a way, it is a philosophy. It's a way of thinking. It's a set of values and assumptions. And so, I don't know, I'm comfortable calling it a philosophy of, of racism. And so there, there's a lot of dubious assumptions within the philosophy of, of racism in including number one, racism assumes that there, that there's uh, differences between various groups of people. You know, they assume that, okay, well, this group of people has these traits and these people have these traits. White people are, are hardworking and Mexicans are lazy, that kind of stuff. 
And these kinds of differences are often either exaggerated or, or just flat out false. Um, usually they're just flat out false in my experience. For example, there are people in the U.S. who think that African Americans are not intelligent or that Asian Americans have really high IQs. But empirically, this has not been demonstrated. But many still believe it to be indisputable fact. You know, why is this? You know, it's, it's because these racist notions that African Americans are not smart or Asian Americans are super smart, the, these racist stereotyping notions are propagated by the ignorant masses through various different messages and communications. They're also motivated by particular groups of power and, you know, keeping particular groups in power. And so there are groups of people who will actually somewhat consciously propagate these, these racist attitudes as a way of staying in power. You know, like sexist attitudes, for instance, men will somewhat consciously propagate notions of sexism so that they can stay in power. When Hillary Clinton ran for the president, there were a lot of sexist attitudes propagated by men because they felt threatened, particularly, you know, particular Republicans felt felt threatened by a woman being in power. And so messages about the way she looks or the fact that she's a, uh, a nasty woman, that, that kind of stuff. It, it's a way of staying in power. Anyway, so um, now these, there's so many ways in which these messages and communications can happen. I mean, just think, how many racist messages does the average American receive compared to the number of scientifically sound messages that they receive. I mean, I would say the ratio is probably 1 billion to 1. So so really it's it, so really it's no wonder that racism is still alive and well. I mean, just think about all the different messages people receive that are that are racist in commercials, in at school, in their families, online, over Twitter, in the in the on the news. I mean, it just in movies, and it just is so mind-boggling. And it's just you know, it's it's no wonder why people have bias, and it's no wonder why people are 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 stereotyping. Now, it doesn't let people off the hook by no means, and I'll get more into that in a second. So, num- the number one dubious assumption within the philosophy of racism is that it it assumes that there are differences between various groups of people that are often either exaggerated or just not even not even demonstrated. Uh, the second uh, assumption of the philosophy of racism that I can think about here is that there are different races. That That's an assumption that is within racism, is that there are actual different races of people. But many experts point out that there are no significant biological or psychological differences between people of different so-called races. You know, the, the race of Africans for instance, or the race of Europeans, you know, they will study these people and they will say that there, there's really no measurable scientific difference between these two groups of people. We're all one species, right? And what is a different race? And why are we defining different races that way? You know, now, sure, we might be socialized differently, if I'm if I was raised in Japan, 
I would have different notions in my head because I would have been socialized differently. But in terms of biology and base level psychology, we're, we're biologically extremely similar. And there are demonstrated more differences within so-called races than between so-called races. For example, for example, among white Americans, there's a lot of diversity. Some are tall, some white Americans are short. Some white Americans are extroverted and some white Americans are introverted and so on and so on. And these differences between white Americans are way more varied than the average differences between white Americans and African Americans. Again, some African Americans are tall and some are short. Some African Americans are extroverted and some are introverted and so on. In other words, there are more, there are more differences within the so-called races than between the so-called races. So it's, to, the notion of race is, is in, uh, in, a, in a lot of ways meaningless. I mean, consider this. In the U.S., whenever you fill out a survey about your race, there are usually the following boxes that you can check. You can check white, non-Hispanic. You can check Hispanic, Latino, Latina. You can check African-American. You can check Asian. And you can check Native American. Those are usually the categories that I see. Sometimes there's an other category or a multi-ethnic category or maybe they'll break out, uh, you know, mainland Asia from Pacific Island or something. But, but usually it's, it's those five categories, white, Hispanic, African-American, Asian, Native American. So for me, if I have to choose from that list, I choose Asian because choosing white seems weird to me, even though I'm half white. But I could choose white if I wanted. But the most accurate choice would probably be multi-ethnic, or other, but whatever. But if oftentimes I'm forced to choose. One time I was I was uh, on instead of Asian, it said Oriental, which is hilarious. But um, and that was just like two years ago. Um, and so uh, <laughs> I should tell you where it was. It was I was being interviewed on the Christian TV channel of all things a couple years ago. The the Christian, you know that sort of like channel 35 or something it's it's a christ it's a, like 24 7 christian christian programming and they had me come to their set where they give sermons and stuff and they wanted to talk with me about um, mental health and addictions and stuff and and god i wish i had a uh a uh, video of that i never if someone f finds that video <laughs> That would be awesome. But anyway, I was being interviewed. And then afterward, they had me fill out a survey for some reason, like a satisfaction survey with being interviewed on their, on their um, network. And they, uh, they asked for some dem demographics. Again, this was two years ago, 2015, maybe 2014, but recently. And th the survey asked for different you know, demographics, how old are you, blah, blah, blah. And what, you know, what's your ethnicity, what's your race? And there, there were like four or five boxes and one of them was Oriental. <laughs> oh, Jiminy. Um, now, I'm not even going to go into the history of the word Oriental. It's pretty complicated. In fact, I will say as a, uh, to, to be fair there, I have, Japanese 
American relatives who, who call themselves Oriental. You know, it's like how you have some African-American people who call themselves colored or who call themselves uh, Negro or something. You know, there's, there's certain words that you grow up with that you end up using and, and it feels okay to you. And, and uh, so I, I'll give them that a tiny little bit of fairness, but anyone who's anyone knows that you don't use the word Oriental anymore. <laughs> When I saw that, I just was, I was just like, my God. I mean, I was kind of looking for something to make fun of them for. And uh, lo and behold. <laughs> okay. So, so again, for me, uh, among those five categories, I would choose uh, Asian um, or, or Oriental, <laughs> if that's what is on the list. Okay. So, so when I check that Asian box <laughs> or Oriental, um, uh, you know, let's let's analyze this so-called "quote-unquote" Asian race. You know, all, all of you out there, particularly in the states, know about that that box. You know, on the census or something, you'll just see like Asian. You check Asian. Okay. Well, there are currently four and a half billion Asians on the planet. Four and a half billion Asians. That is more than half of the world's population. More than half of the world's population is Asian. There are, in China, China alone, there's, there's 1.4 billion Chinese people. In India, there are 1.3 billion Indian people. In the Philippines, for instance, there are over 100 different languages, a hundred different languages in the United States and Canada. We, for the most part, speak one dominant language, which is English. Obviously, there's Spanish and and French and other kinds of languages, but but even Spanish and French and English are probably more similar than the distinct languages in the Philippines. And we define race a lot of times by language, right? So, so and that so that's the so in India it's the same thing, in China it's the same thing. There's and in, you know, Indonesia, in all these different Guam and all these in, in Kazakhstan, whatever, you know, there's all these very distinct groups of ethnicities. And yet in the United States, we just lump everyone together in this, in this category we label as Asian. So, so again, just to put a fine point on it, this so-called Asian race comprises of probably thousands upon thousands of distinct groups of people who consider themselves to be extremely distinct from each other. Distinct groups who are probably way more different in language and customs and history than the differences between, say, English people and, Ita and Italian people. And yet, on American surveys, we lump half over half of the world's population into this one category called Asian. Even if you give them, well, they're probably, probably meaning East Asian. Well, again, East Asia includes China, Indonesia, the Philippines, Japan, Korea, all the Pacific Island people, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm you know, Thailand, Vietnam, Cambodia, uh, Laos, uh, you know, I'm miss. I'm 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 leaving some people out here, but Singapore. You know, there's. We're talking like probably two and a half billion people. So even if you say East Asian, we're we're still talking about 
vast numbers of groups of distinct cultures. You know, that it, it, when I, and I talk about this sometimes in, in class and, and just, just to point out how absurd our, our socially constructed notions of race are. But uh, for instance, you know, let, let's reverse this. Let's say that in China, they have a survey in which they ask people to answer, you know, a question as to their ethnicity or their, to their race. And let's say that Chinese people, they uh, have a category called non-Asian. You know, they, they, just, they just have it, you know, non-Asian people. And in this group of people, you have the entire population of North America, Canada, uh, you know, the United States, Mexico, uh, you know, Central America, all, you know, all those, all those places. Okay, all those people are lumped into that category in one racial group. All included in this group is also the entire population of South America, Brazil, Venezuela, Peru, Colombia, all these people. Also in this group is all the people of Europe, you know, Italy, um, Belarus, Czechoslovakia, uh, you know, Ireland, uh, Luxembourg. What what other kind of countries can I think of off the top of my head? Um, Not only that. But in this group of quote-unquote non-Asians are everyone from Africa, you know, Egypt, Morocco, South Africa, you know, Cong- the Republic of Congo, all these people. Not only that, but also the people of the Middle East. So we're talking everyone in, in North America, everyone in South America, everyone in Europe, everyone in Africa, and everyone in the Middle East is included in one racial category. This would still not be as absurd as lumping all of Asia into one racial group because all those people I just named are, are less than half of, of the world's population. Whereas, whereas the, the lumping of Asia into one racial group is more than half. So I just really want you to think about that the next time you're filling out one of these forms and it says Asian as a race, you were talking about, for almost four and a half billion people comprising of thousands upon thousands of different groups of people speaking thousands upon thousands of different languages with different histories and who themselves consider themselves to be extremely different from the culture, you know, halfway across the globe. I mean, we're lumping people in from the tip of the Philippines, the southern tip of the Philippines, to groups of people who live in, in Siberia, to groups of people who live in, you know, uh, India or Bangladesh or Japan or Korea. I mean, just think about if you've been to this part of the world, you're just like, yeah, that's absurd. These are extremely different groups of people. Okay. So, so let's just, uh, so, so that's one, according to many Americans, that's one race of people, Asians. Okay. It's ridiculous. So, um, this is, you know, another example of how race is completely social constructed, and it's, and it's largely meaningless. And the definition of your race has been constructed by the society that you live in. When people see me and they find out that I have slanty eyes, they're like, oh, well, you're Asian. And I'm just like, oh, well, you know, great. That's a wonderful label that, you know, means nothing. It's like, that's just a shy, that's just like a, a hair away from saying you live on the planet earth <laughs> it's like, since half the, half the world's population is Asian, you know, um, 
and again, socially constructed. For example, as a child in the 70s, I, as a Japanese American, I was a foreigner. I was considered to be a foreigner because I wasn't entirely white. And I looked to, back then, people were very used to white faces. And so when they saw my face, they're like, oh, you know, he's. People thought I was full Asian, one, because because they were just really used to, to you know, white faces. And, and I was in the sun a lot as a kid and, was, you know, a little darker. But people just thought, oh, well, he's, he, he's Asian and he's, he's a foreigner. And they'd be surprised that I could speak English. <laughs> Even though my Japanese ancestors have been living in Washington State for over 100 years, which is much longer than the average person in Washington, and most of my European ancestors go back to the 1600s and 1700s in the United States. So I am, I am one of those, you know, I'm a child of the revolution. I'm a son of the revolution. If you, you know, you've heard of the daughters of the revolution. Well, I'm a son of the revolution. I, my, ancestors, my ancestors go way back. And on, on average, I would say I'm way more local and, and uh, legitimately of, a, of the American experience than I would say most people who live in the United States. And yet in the 70s, and you know, it's, it's all meaningless anyway, it's, it doesn't matter. But the point is, is that when people saw me when I was eight years old in the 70s, they'd say, oh, you're a foreigner, you know, where are you from? Uh, this even happened in the 90s. I actually went to rural Canada and people, were, people there were asking, oh, where are you from? And I was like, oh, you know, Seattle. Oh, no, no, no. Where are you from? Where are you from? So just looking at my face, people were like, oh, you're a foreigner. You know, you're, you're, not, you're not white. You're not from here. And as a result, when I was a kid, I considered myself to be a different person. You know, I considered myself to not be of the majority. You know, I was, I was made to feel different because that's how I was treated. But today, in 2017, in Seattle, there are people who are way more so-called Asian than I am. You know, you have, you have actual people who, who are, were born in, in Japan or Korea or China or Vietnam or Cambodia or the Philippines or Indonesia or Guam or wherever, and here they are in the United States. And so a lot of the white Americans in Seattle, when they look at me, they, they don't see that. And so, they, so, so now people consider me to be white, it's bizarre. I didn't notice the shift in culture until I started referring to myself as a person of color. It's only been recently, maybe in the last five or 10 years that I've really asserted myself as a quote unquote person of color because I am, I, you know, a person of color, you know, you know people will debate this and it's fine, but I, I like to refer to myself as a person of color because I've absolutely experienced the non-white experience in this country. You know, I've, I've absolutely been, victimized and marginalized because I'm not white. Now, I would very easily argue that my experience of racism has been far short of what the average African-American has gone through, but I've experienced it nonetheless, and, and it, you can't take that away from me. And so, so lately I've, you know, occasionally, you know, I don't know, once every six months or something, you know, somehow it'll come up and I'll refer to myself as a person of color. And it's interesting to see the looks on white people's faces. They they look at me funny when I call myself a person of color. They're they're just like, huh. And some of my friends will even go so far as to confront me and say, "You're not a person of color." They'll, you know, they say, "Oh, you you know, you're basically white." <laughs> 
I love it when white people tell me who I am. You know, I love it when white people are like, ah, yeah, you know, you're basically white. Just They just erase my entire Japanese heritage. And actually, this happened with a supervisee of mine recently. She... She just she I she she didn't know me well enough. We barely started working with each other, and she's like, "Oh yeah, you know you're oh that's a very typical white male thing to say." And I'm like, uh, "Do you know that I'm a person of color?" Sure, I'm half white. And then she's like, "Oh well, yeah, I, you know you're half white." So and I was just like, "Wow." But anyway, so um, to say that, and I've said this on the podcast before. To say that I'm basically white is to call Obama basically white. Obama's half white and he's half African American. So, well, specifically, he's half African. You know, his father was an African immigrant. And so to call me basically white is to call Obama basically white. Now, again, the African American experience is different than, Asia, than the Asian American experience, but it, it doesn't mean that I don't have the right, so to speak, to call myself a person of color because I do have that right. So again, the reason why I'm telling you this is because I saw this shift within my lifetime. As a child, I was considered a foreigner, a weirdo, a something strange. And people would say, oh, where are you from? And then as an adult now in Seattle, people say, oh, you're basically white. And, and so white people are treating me differently within my lifetime, which has made me fully aware that the notion of race is socially constructed. We as a society decide for ourselves what race is, and we construct our notions of race. So not only do we construct our categories of race, you're white, you're Asian, you're Native American, you're Hispanic, you're, you know, whatever. Uh, so not only do we define that, but we, but we also attribute, we also can socially construct the attributes of that particular uh, race, which is why, due to my experience, it, which is why throughout my life, I've been so skeptical of the notions of race in our society. You know, I've seen people define me differently in different contexts. And so in that, so I, I you know, it's just another uh example of this assumption of this second assumption that I'm talking about within the philosophy of racism that assumes that there are different races. Now, there's a caveat to this that I'll get into in a second, but before we do that, let's take a break. Okay, we're back from the break. If you haven't become a patron of the podcast, please do so by going to patreon.com. That's patreon.com. When you go there, you get access to all of our exclusive episodes. We have hundreds of patron-only episodes in which we do deep dives into various different complicated and interesting topics. Uh, and if you're a Game of Thrones fan, there's a patron-exclusive episode in which I do a deep dive on Sandor Clegane, the, the hound from Game of Thrones. Okay, so again, let's take a deep breath. Racism and marginalization and... Uh, outgroup dynamics, sexism, transphobia, heterosexism. These are all traumatic things for us, regardless of where we come from. And they're t it's a tough topic to talk about. It's a tough topic to hear about. It's a tough topic to exist within our society for people who have been marginalized and for 
the marginalizers. You know, we're all trying our best and we could do better. And one way we can do that is by having these conversations and by risking making mistakes. I've probably already made a few. And again, feel free to email me and let me know in a polite way, please. Uh, if it's not polite, I don't listen to it. Open hostility, you know, I get it every day. And I'm at the point now in my life where I just, if, if the first hostile word that I read, I just delete it. I just don't, I don't have time for that shit. Uh, if, now, I'm not asking people to kiss my ass, but I'm just asking for normal social skills. <laughs> now, I'm sure none of you listeners out there are like that. But there's, it's mainly like YouTube people that are like this. But anyway, so take a deep breath. Everyone is, uh, you know, aside from the small, very small percentage of people who are psychopaths and sadists, you know, the 99% of us are caring individuals. We're compassionate. We, we want to love each other. We want acceptance from each other, and uh, we can, we're all in this together. No, no, you know, white Republicans who live in the Midwest are not the enemy. They, they, they love people. They care about people, and you know, we can all we're all in this together. Let's all just you know band together. <laughs> anyway, okay. So I've talked about what I would consider to be two of the assumptions of the philosophy of racism. And let me talk about two more. Number three, racism also assumes that these differences result in racial superiority. So not only do we assume that there are different races, but we also assume, or, you know, the philosophy of racism assumes that one, that different races are superior to others. You know, for instance, white people, they rule the world, right? Therefore, white people are superior to all other races, that sort of thing. You know, it's, it's a, there's a superiority issue or component of racism. Okay, number four. Some racists also propose that there's such a thing as racial purity. So not only superiority, but also racial purity. But if you study history... As, as I do in an amateur way, you learn that there's, there's really no such thing as a pure race. You know, there, there are some examples of what some races could consider themselves to be quote-unquote pure. But, but, but again, every race, if you go back far enough, comes from another so-called race. Um, you know, for example, I'm Japanese, and many Japanese people are very concerned about remaining purely Japanese. There are Japanese people who try to, pres to, to preserve the purity of the Japanese race by discouraging immigration to their country or discouraging intermarriage. But here's the thing. The so-called Japanese race descended from immigrants who crossed the sea from Korea. There was also a group of people who native lived on Japan, on the Japanese islands, and uh, they, you know, may have interbred with these immigrants from from Korea. So, in a sense, all Japanese people are actually Korean in a way. But again, these are all just kind of meaningless labels because the 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 migratory patterns of humans, as far as we know, uh, has been happening, you know, in in a lot of fluctuation for the you know since our species became to be, which was, you know, 
I think a couple million years ago, a um, couple hundred thousand years ago. <laughs> Wait, anyway, at least a couple hundred thousand years ago, if not 400,000 years ago. Anyway, uh, I'm probably sounding stupid at that point. I should know my numbers there. But anyway, now here's my caveat. I'm not saying that people don't have identity or an ethnicity. This is different from the idea of race. Okay. Now, some people are free to define race and ethnicity as the same thing and identity is the same thing. And, and so I'm not saying that, but here's my caveat. Everyone is free to identify however they want. I freely identify as a Japanese American. I don't call myself a Korean American. And if I was to call myself a Japanese American and someone came up to me and said, actually, you know what? You're actually a Korean American because, you know, most Japanese people came across the sea from Korea. I'd slap them in the face because I can identify eth- ethnicity wise or culturally wise or identity wise, however, I fucking want to identify myself. And if you want to identify yourself as, as, you know, one thing, you know, as a, african-american or as asian or whatever you want like that is totally your right and you have that freedom um you know i i identify as a japanese american because i have pride in my ethnicity and i have pride in my heritage i want to honor my my ancestors by identifying this way i have japanese american ancestors who who toiled and you know who immigrated against all odds and built themselves up from the ground up and became farmers in central Washington and who endured the, the imprisonment during World War II, often, you know, uh, euphemistically called internment camps or relocation camps. These are not fucking in, internment or relocation. They were imprisoned. They were, these are prisons of American citizens you know, Japanese American people. And so I have pride in all of that uh, perseverance and all of that, uh, you know, history. And so I identify as a Japanese American. I like that. Um, I've also been socialized as a Japanese American and I, and I have pride about that. You know, I've been socialized to love to eat, to eat sushi and spam and, and, uh, and seaweed and all sorts of weird Japanese American stuff. And so I, I have pride in that and I, I like to call myself that. But I don't believe that I'm racially different from anyone else in the world, which, you know, biologically, you know, base level psychology. I don't believe that I am of the race of Japanese Americans, particularly because I'm half. But the, the point is, is that I don't believe that I am a different species. I don't believe I'm a different race from anyone else on the planet. Um, you know, I don't believe I'm a distinct group of people. And I certainly don't believe that I should remain racially pure. Particularly, uh, as I said, because I'm, I'm not racially pure, I'm half European American. And, and I certainly don't believe that I'm superior to anyone else based on my identity. So there's a big difference between the implications of the philosophy of racism and race and the implications of the identification and uh, of cultural pride. You know, these are all very complicated things. And it's not like I, people don't identify in a way that can marginalize other people. That's not what I'm saying. But I just wanted to have this caveat that, that says, look, 
if you want to identify as a particular quote unquote race, then go for it. You know, just, we just all have to be mindful of what that means exactly, because there are people who identify as part of the white race who consider themselves to be a superior animal to other, other races. They, they almost, they consider race to be a distinct line between basically different species of humans and and so the idea of race can can be taken to that level and can be very harmful and is just scientifically not supported because there is no distinct biological or psychological line between these different so-called races. Um, having said that, if 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 you take pride in calling yourself of a particular race, then that's fine. I'm not going to take that away from you. And I can't, obviously, because I don't have that power. But I, I'm not implying that you shouldn't uh, have that pride, because I absolutely have that pride. In a way, I have I have white pride. And I know that's not very politically correct, but I have pride in my white heritage as well. I also have some extreme shame about my white heritage. I've been doing all this all this um, ancestry genealogy stuff recently. I'm like reading books and and da da da, and I'm discovering that in in my white side, my European American side, since I go back to the 1600s and 1700s, that my ancestor, some of my ancestors, likely had slaves, and it's that's like I, I never had considered that before because I I grew up thinking that most of my European American ancestors came over recently and, you know, after slavery was abolished in the United States. But I've come to learn more recently that that is not the case. And so I'm really struggling with that new identification for myself. You know, it's like, what does that, what does that mean? On the other hand, I, I come from this group of Quakers. I have this strong line of Quakers, the Mendenhalls of, of Pennsylvania and of North Carolina, and I've learned that they were uh, totally against war and totally against slavery and would actually help free the slaves in the South. So I have both and in, on my white side. So I have pride in those Quakers, which I never thought I would. <laughs> I never knew I came from Quakers, but I never would have thought that, you know, but I, I have pride in that. I don't have pride in the slave ownership at all, but I have pride in in the slate in the people the white people in my ancestry that freed the slaves. In the same way with my Japanese American side, the Japanese people have are they're the in the past they were the Nazis of the East. They did terrible, and I'm, I do not use that word lightly. They, uh, you know, empirically did horrible, 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 horrible things to the Koreans, to the Filipinos, to the Chinese, uh, to everyone in that whole region. They raped, they killed, they murdered, they genocide. They they did all these terrible things based on on racism, based on them believing that they were uh, superior. And I'm not proud of that. Now, thank God my ancestors came over before all that happened, so I don't have to uh, really think about it too much, but I probably have, you know, third cousins or something that definitely did all that kind of stuff. And, you know, and that's, that doesn't make me feel good. Plus the Japanese people were starting their imperialism, um, you know, I think in the 1800s and stuff. And so the point is, is on my Japanese side, I have both end as well. I, I have the, uh, the, 
identification with uh, perseverance through being in prison during World War II. I have actual family members that were in prison during that time. And I also have, you know, this this uh, troubling part of my ancestry that I have to think about in terms of the rape of Nanking and all the all these terrible things. And so uh, where am I going with this? My, my point is, is that I absolutely identify with my ethnicity and I absolutely have a ethnic identity or a heritage identity or even a racial identity. But the notion of race as being a distinct thing, like African-Americans are good at sports or white people are good leaders or women are good with blank or men are, you know, these notions are largely unscientific and largely unsupported by evidence. And so when we talk about race and we talk about differences in race and we talk about racial groups, we just have to be more, um, you know, we just have to be skeptical of, of a lot of the claims that are happening. So I hope that makes sense. Okay. So that's a long discussion about racism and the assumptions of racism uh, but what about the definition of racist behavior? Okay, because this is a whole other topic. Because so far I've just been kind of talking about the umbrella issues here. But what about actual racist behavior? Things that people actually do that we might call racist. There are many opinions about what constitutes racist behavior. You know, some say a particular behavior is racist, while others say that it isn't. And for this reason, and I've talked about this before on the podcast, for, the, for, for this reason, particularly in today's media, I, I actually have stopped using the term racism whenever possible, uh, particularly when I talk to people who are hostile to notions of racism. So I like to use the terms harmful or hurtful or biased or even just unfair. Like when, when someone is hiring for a job and they hire a white person over a person of color based on bias – then I call that unfair it, because most people would agree, yeah, that's unfair. You can't, you know, you can't do that to someone. But if I said the word racist, people would be like, whoa, 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 you know, like maybe the white person is, you know, better at that job. It's just, it's weird to see how as soon as you say the word racist, people get really weird. So, so unfair, unfair or hurtful or biased or harmful. So uh, uh, plus, People, I think it's just people get triggered by the word racist or something. So, Now, it should also be noted that racism is not merely a problem for African Americans and other people of color, as I've been discussing, but I just want to really make sure that this is clear. Racism is a problem for everyone. Anyone can be a victim of racism, even privileged white people. You know, an African American person can absolutely discriminate unfairly against a white person and treat them harmfully. But it just so happens that in the U.S., the overall amount of racism against African-Americans is far, far greater than the overall amount of racism against white people. But that doesn't negate the fact that anyone can commit a racist act, and it doesn't negate the fact that anyone can be a victim of racism, and it doesn't justify unfair actions against privileged people. Unfairness is unfairness. Being uncool is being uncool. And if we are to be truly dedicated to fairness and truly dedicated to eradicating racism, then we need to recognize any action that is racist or unfair. 
And we need to recognize that there are particular groups of people in, in the United States and around the world who experience way more unfairness than other groups of people. So it's both and. You know, privileged people can absolutely be treated unfairly by, by marginalized groups of people in a micro level. But, but we also have to recognize that there are definitely groups of people who are marginalized way more often than, than other groups of people. Okay. All right. So before moving forward, it should be acknowledged that in the, in the U.S., the medical and psychological communities have a history of racist behavior. I just want to point this out because I come from this society, from this community of psychology. And so I just want to call out my own self and my own community and point out that we can be racist ourselves in, in our research and our notions. I can be racist myself. I have been racist. I, I'm a product of a racist society, as I'm guessing most people are around the world. And therefore, I have racist notions and, and you know, um, implicit bias. I can't, I can't avoid it. It's hard to deprogram that kind of stuff. Um, so I just want to point out that, you know, my, my community has been racist as well. You know, in, in the name of science, uh, the medical community, the psychological community, the psychiatric community has been treating people unfairly, particularly people of color and, and other marginalized groups of people like poor people or disabled people. For example, um, uh, I actually did an entire episode on this on this topic. It's called Scientists Abusing People. I don't, I don't come up with the best titles, but anyway, it's called Scientists Abusing People. And one of the examples I talk about in that episode is it happened in 1965. There's a guy named Peter Buxton, who I consider to be a hero. Peter Buxton was a 27-year-old social worker in San Francisco working for the, for the Public Health Service, and he was interviewing patients about STIs. And he was documenting how STIs were transmitted. Incidentally, this guy is white. And he comes across this study called the Tuskegee ex Experiment. And he reads about this experiment. And he learns that the U.S. government has been sponsoring a study that has been monitoring the health of 400 poor black men who were infected with syphilis. So again, he, he comes across well, the Tuskegee Experiment. What's this? Uh, the U.S. government is sponsoring a, a study that has been monitoring the health of 400 poor black men who have syphilis. And the study began in 1932, like 33 years prior to him picking this up. He's like, wow, this is an interesting study. And at first it seemed to be, you know, just another standard longitudinal study, no problem there. But he reads it more closely and he learns that the researchers have been deceiving the subjects by not telling them that they're in a study. The researchers were telling these men that they were being treated for quote-unquote bad blood. For 33 years, these African-American men have been asked to come to the doctor for treatment for, for quote-unquote bad blood, when in reality the doctors were not treating them at all. They were in fact just monitoring their syphilis and publishing the results without the consent of the men and without telling them that they even had syphilis. So, these men, these 400 poor black men, have syphilis. These doctors are purposely keeping that information from them for decades. And 
they're tricking them into thinking that they're being treated for something when in fact they're just monitoring their behavior and they're, they're not treating them at all. Also, Peter Buxton learns that when penicillin became available in the 1950s, these Tuskegee experiment researchers did not allow the infected men to get treatment for it. In some cases, when some of the, these black men were diagnosed as having syphilis by another doctor, because, you know, they go to other doctors and they're like, oh, actually, it looks like you have syphilis. The researchers would jump in and, and intervene and tell the doctor not to tell the patient that he has syphilis. And the researchers told them to not administer any treatment, you know, because these researchers wanted to see what syphilis would do to someone over several decades. And so they tricked these, these men, uh, you know, largely because they thought they could get away with it because these men were not only black, but they're also poor. And so they're like, well, you know, they'll never know and we can trick them. You know, would they have tricked millionaire white people in the same way? Absolutely not. There's because they would have been sued so far to Sunday. They would have never, you know, done. <laughs> I don't know how to end the sentence, but anyway, so Peter Buxton comes across a study and he realizes, wait, this is like a huge study. And there's a lot of people who have, who have come across a study before me. And he's like, why hasn't anyone been uh, talking about this? And Peter Buxton gets outraged. And in 1966, he submitted a formal complaint to the researchers, which is, you know, what you're supposed to do. You're supposed to be like, hey, uh, I'm not going to make this public because I really just want to go to you guys and say, um, you realize what you're doing is unethical, right? Well, what did the researchers do? Well, the, re the researchers ignored him. And so Peter Buxton wasn't going to give up. And a couple of years later, he, he was still angry about it, and he files another complaint. And he goes to the researchers again. He's like, hey, you, you've been ignoring me, and I just want to say what you're doing to these, to these men is wrong. It's unethical. It's immoral. And so surely this time the researchers would have listened, right? Nope. They ignored him again. Well, Peter Buxton, you know, is fed up and he gets angry. And he could have given up, but he didn't. And, you know, what do we do when, what should he have done? He's, he's, he's already gone to them and there's really no ethics board at this point to go to. So what does he do? Well, he went to the press and he told them the entire story. And the press jumped on this story and immediately published it. It eventually became front page news for the New York Times. And the public became outraged, particularly African-American people, right? Even the Congress got outraged. And the Congress uh, conducted an investigation. And after the investigation, the government closed the study. They said, you know, you can't, this is bullshit. You got to shut this down. You got to tell these men that they have syphilis and you got you to gotta give them penicillin. Come on. You know, don't be assholes. And because of this study, the Tuskegee experiment's a famous, terrible, unethical thing. But because of this study in the 70s, the government formed a commission to monitor research and the ethics of research. So if it wasn't for hero Peter Buxton, no one would have known about this. He put his career on the line to blow the whistle on this. He didn't have to do it. He's, he's a white guy. He could have just ignored it. But his morality compelled him, and he's a good guy. And there are many other stories like this one. And not, not, there's a lot more stories in which these experiments in the psychological community, psychiatric, medical community, there's a lot of stories in which marginalized groups of people are 
being experimented on in a super unethical way. And uh, if you want more, you know, listen to that other episode. So in summary, it should be noted that the medical field and the field of psychology, they both have a history of massively racist behavior. Again, I just want to acknowledge that since I'm a part of that psychological community. And since I understand the history of my community, I try to remain humble as I explore this topic of racism. Since I might accidentally use my power to harm particular groups of people, which, as I said, I have absolutely done in the past. Um, for more information on that, you should listen to my episode titled, I Apologize, or My Apology, or something, in April 2016, in which I apologize for harming a group of people. Okay, so let's get back to the literature on racism. Many researchers have found evidence that racism is learned. So in order to answer the question as to whether or not racism is a mental illness or not, we have to first contemplate, okay, what's the research say about the cause of racism? Well, many researchers have found that racism is learned. They believe that our racist feelings, our racist thoughts, our racist behaviors, they're all a product of socially transmitted learning. You know, we learn it through interacting with other people. We learn our racist notions from our families, from our friends, from our institutions, from our textbooks, from the media, from the internet, etc. But on the other hand, many other researchers believe that racism is the result of a psychological process, such as personality or delusion or trauma. For example, if a German man raped you, you might have, like a German national who speaks German, you might have an emotional reaction to other German men when they are speaking German. And this might result in you treating German men in the future differently. You, know, you might have a bias against German people because you have trauma from an actual German person. So this is not a socially transmitted learning process. Instead, it's learned from individual experience. It's specific to that one person. And therefore, it's an intrapsychic issue. It's not a social learning issue, you know, meaning that no other person was telling you that, social, that German people are bad. You, you just, through a you know, traumatic psychological experience, now have acquired some racial bias. So there's a debate about that. You know, what's the cause of racism? Is it society? Is it learned through messages, uh, you know, internalized from society? Or, or is it an intrapsychic issue? Incidentally, in my opinion, I would say it's mostly social learning issue, and in a minor way, it can also be an interpsychic issue, but, you know, it's just my take on it. Now, it should be noted that research has found that overt racial biases in the U.S. have actually decreased over the years. So we should, we should recognize that with a lot of our efforts of raising awareness and doing our best, we've actually reduced overt, a lot of overt racism in the United States. But covert racism remains strong in our society. You know, in the past, many people were quite comfortable stating their racist opinions. If you're not familiar, just watch a documentary about the desegregation in the South in, in the 1950s and 60s. You will see a lot of overt racism back then. I mean, people, you know, average Joes holding signs of just hateful, hateful messages against African-Americans. But today, overt racism of that sort is generally not acceptable. So people have learned how to hide their racist attitudes. But before we go into that, let's take a break. Okay, we're back from the break. 
So again, we're talking about the difference between overt and covert racism uh, and that in the past in the United States there was more overt racism and today uh, those racist attitudes have become more covert, meaning hidden and, and expressed subtly or indirectly. Um, and so when you have racist attitudes sort of rattling around in your soul and you're trying to suppress them, they, they eventually come out. And sometimes the way it sneaks out is in the form of microaggressions. For more information on microaggressions, listen to my 2016 episode called Microaggressions. But in a nutshell, microaggressions are brief or subtle or everyday hostilities toward particular groups of people. They, microaggressions can be intentional or they can be unintentional. They can be the result of conscious thought or unconscious bias. And microaggressions can target any group of people, not just so-called racial groups, but also, you know, gender groups or, you know, sexual orientation groups. For example, microaggressions can be an expression of sexism, like mansplaining, you know, uh, mansplaining is a, is a sexist microaggression. It's a man, mansplaining is a, is a subtle, indirect way for a male to communicate that he believes that women are stupid and that they need a male to explain simple things to them. So mansplaining is a, is a microaggression that, that feels harmful often to, to women. An example of a racial microaggression is when an African-American man is dressed in a suit. He's just a, you know, a guy that is going to work and he's dressed in a suit. And for whatever reason, he finds himself standing outside of a hotel. He's waiting for a taxi or something. And a white person walks by and asks him to park his car for him. You know, he just flips him his keys and said, you know, park the car. And the African-American man says, oh, sorry, I don't work here. And the white man says, oh, my God, I'm sorry. Now, this could have been an innocent mistake. It, 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 could have, it, could have been, it could have been overt hostility, you know what I mean, where the white man is just like, I don't like this guy thinking he's all uppity dressing up in a, in a suit, so I'm going to humiliate him in this way. But, you know, more likely it's probably not on purpose and, it, and it's not overt hostility. But it is the result of bias and stereotyping. If it was a white man standing in front of the hotel in, a, in the same suit, acting in the exact same way, would the man have flipped him his keys and said, get my car? You know, we don't know, but the chances are, are slim. So the white person's bias is that African-American men don't wear suits unless they're working as a servant of some kind. Now, many people will say, but it's not the white man's fault for making an innocent mistake. He didn't, he didn't mean to do that. You know, racist behavior is something you do on purpose. You, you know, if someone does it on accident, you can't call that racism. And to that, I would say, yeah, but it's the responsibility of the white man to educate himself on his bias and, you know, so that he doesn't harm people in this way. You know, let me give you an analogy. How many times have you been on an airplane and someone hits you with their fricking bag? <laughs> this happens to me all the time. Someone will have a backpack on and they're just not, or they're carrying luggage, you know, somehow. And they, they're not aware of the fact that other people are around or they're not paying attention. And they'll, they'll, they'll turn their body somehow and they'll just hit me in the head with their fricking back. And, you know, now would you say to that person, well, you know, it's an innocent mistake. Well, to that, I say, particularly to people who have been on the plane more than once, 
I, I would say, no, it's everyone's responsibility to figure out how they impact other people and take, and take reasonable steps to avoid harming these other people. You know, for me, I only needed to be hit by someone's bag one time to realize, oh, I hope I don't do this. <laughs> I, need to, I need to be really careful with my backpack because it's, you know, it's easy to accidentally hit someone with it because you're not aware of how wide you are when you have a, when you have a backpack on. You know, it, only, it only took one time for me to be hit in the head with a backpack to go like, <gasps> have I ever done this to someone? Boy, I, I, I better make sure. And so what I actually do now is when I'm on the plane – because I always have a backpack. Uh, I never put the backpack on my back. I put it on my front. Because if I have it on my front, I, my eyes are in my front, and I'll, and I'll see someone before I hit them. If I put it on my back, I don't have eyes on my back, and I can't always keep track of. So, so you know, that's me. Now, I'm not saying I'm better than other people, but I'm saying that, uh, you know, when it comes to racism and, and accidental racism, it's up to everyone uh, you know, particularly white people in, in the United States to really look at themselves and look at their behavior and really, you know, make sure that they're not doing these kinds of things. So for instance, with this white guy, my hope would be the next time he is rushing to get his car parked, that he really makes sure that there's a clear indication that the, you know, the person there is actually the person who is parking the cars and not just an innocent bystander. And I hope that he would say, huh, wow, why did I assume that guy was the, was the parking attendant? Was it because I have a racial bias? Boy, you know, I really need to look at that. Now, I'm not, at, you know, calling for perfection upon, a, you know, for white people or for anyone for that matter. I have been you know, a person of color my entire life. And I really have tried to not, you know, uh, commit these acts against other people, but I probably commit these acts on a daily basis to other people because we're only human. We're not capable of perfection when it comes to combating the deeply ingrained notions that are in our head about all sorts of groups of people about not only race, but gender and, you know, disability and age. And, you know, it's just, it's, it's, it's impossible, but we have to try. And in the example of flipping the keys to a man who's just wearing a suit and just assuming that he's, he's working there, I would imagine that, you know, it would be easy to uh, correct for that in the future. So um, now, uh, that's what I have to say about, about that. Okay. So, um, so this is the current reality of racism in the United States today, you know, from my perspective in a nutshell, you have some overt racism, but you have a lot of covert racism. Let me give you another example. This example isn't related to racism, but I want to tell it anyway. <laughs> when, when I was younger, before I was a therapist, I used to have a job in which I would provide quote unquote, respite for parents. Uh, again, I, I wasn't a therapist yet, but I was in the helping, you know, profession. And I would go to, I would go to the home of different foster homes usually, and I would entertain the kids um, to give the foster parents a break. These kids were usually wards of the state and they usually had behavioral issues and the state didn't want the parents to burn out. So they would pay for me to entertain the kids. I, 
I would take the kids out into the community or to a park or something, you know, give, give the parents a break. Now, my job title was something more fancy, like, you know, youth counselor or something. But in a nutshell, I was basically a glorified babysitter, let's be honest. Anyway, I would take the kids out into the community to get them out of the house and to entertain them. And we would go to the mall or we'd go to the pool or we'd go to the game center or something. And so at the time, I was a 25-year-old, 23-year-old dude walking around with a kid. And I dressed like a 25-year-old, you know, I, I dressed like a dirty college student. And so I'd be walking around the mall or the pool with this kid, you know, eight years old, 14 years old. And a lot of people would stare at me. And at first, I didn't think anything of it. But over time, I began to realize that people were staring at me because they thought I was a pedophile or a predator or something, you know, something was off that they didn't like. And they were really, you know, taking notice of it. You know, I I'd take a kid to the pool and I would hang out by the pool because I, you know, I didn't want to go swimming in the, you know, at work. And so I'd sit by the side of the pool and I had to watch the kid to make sure the kid didn't drown or something. And people would stare at me as if I was a pedophile or something. And occasionally people would actually approach me and ask me what I was doing there. You know, what are you doing here, pal? Now, I'm not saying they weren't justified in asking me these questions. You know, maybe it's, you know, it's completely justified given the context, but what I'm saying is that society has learned a bias against young men who hang out with children. They have learned through social construction that young men who hang out with children are almost certainly pedophiles, even though only a small, very small percentage of young men are in fact pedophiles. And certainly I am not a pedophile. And as the months went by and as I constantly got stares from people and questions, I got sick of it. I was tired of people assuming that I was a pedophile. You know, the first 10 times someone assumed I was a pedophile, I'm like, yeah, well, whatever. But by the thousandth time, it, you know, it really gets on your nerves. So this is another example of prejudice and stereotyping and learned bias. And it's another example of microaggressions. Even though I'm, I, I was a young male at the time and therefore privileged in a lot of ways, I absolutely experienced microaggressions. And so it's another example of how people can treat others unfairly based on unfounded bias. Okay, so again, the question is that I'm going to answer today or at least talk about is, is racism a mental illness? Okay, so the people that say yes have a number of different points they want to get across. So some people say that racism is a mental illness because it is a psychiatric problem, and it's a public health problem. Racism is a psychiatric problem. Racism is a you know, problem on public health. Racism harms other people, just like antisocial personality disorder. You know, if you have antisocial personality disorder, then you are likely to harm other people. And so if you're racist, you're also likely to harm other people. So therefore, shouldn't we consider it a psychiatric issue? And if you're racist, you harm yourself. You know, you, your, your racist attitudes will make other, will put other people off and, you know, you might not get hired or you might shoot yourself in the foot a lot. And so it's another reason, you know, just like if you're depressed, you're going to have trouble motivating to go to work and you might get fired or something. And so in this way, racism is similar to other mental disorders. Um, the people who think racism should be considered a mental illness, they say that racism can be addressed by the mental health system. 
you know, it's been found that mental health professionals can actually help reduce racism in some individuals. Therefore, perhaps we should consider it a mental illness. Also, racism could be a symptom of a delusional, a delusional disorder or an anxiety disorder or, or a personality disorder. Um, in some cases, when someone becomes delusional or paranoid or manic, they will become extremely racist. And with mental health treatment, these racist thoughts will diminish. And so, you know, therefore, perhaps we should consider racism as a part of a disorder. Also, racism seems to be connected to a number of different personality disorders, including narcissistic personality disorder. You know, it seems to be that there's a subset of people with narcissistic personality disorder who seem to be particularly fixated on race. They believe that their race is better in a narcissistic way. You know, they believe I'm better and therefore my race is better. And so, you know, so those, those are the points, uh, just some of the points that people will say, look, you know, we should really consider racism to, to be a mental illness. But others say, no, racism should not be considered a mental illness. The people on this side of the fence will point out that it's never been considered a disorder in the, in the history of our profession, and the DSM has never mentioned it. And for good reason, they will say. They will also point out that it's, it's really difficult to measure whether or not someone is racist in a pathological way. You know, we all have racial biases. Research shows that. But at what point would someone be considered to have a DSM disorder? You know, what's the threshold, you know, and they're saying, eh, I don't think we should call it a disorder because of that. People on this side of the fence also say that if we classify racist behavior as a mental illness, then that means that people who commit hate crimes might be off the hook and relieved of any legal consequences for their behavior. In other words, if a white guy kills a bunch of black people because he's a white supremacist, then he might be able to claim he was insane at the at the you know point of the crime with racism and therefore not responsible for his behavior. This would be similar to the way we don't blame people with schizophrenia for their delusional beliefs and the behavior that stems from their de delusional beliefs. So for this reason, these people are saying we should never classify racism as a mental illness. Also, as another reason why racism should not be classified as a mental illness, many racist attitudes and behaviors are the result of being massively misinformed as a child. And the, you know, when, when we're children, we're, we're taught a particular brand of racism. And as we become an adult and we actually interact with these groups of people, these racist beliefs, these outgroup beliefs usually go away. Therefore, it, it seems to be just a belief system. It's just a cultural notion that gets passed around and therefore it shouldn't be considered a mental illness. So the broader question is, what is a mental illness, Right. It, you know, we, we if we're going to ask, is, is racism a mental illness? Well, well, what is a mental illness exactly anyway? You know, what is a mental disorder? Some consider a mental disorder to be a health condition, and some don't. Uh, some consider a mental disorder to be a condition that involves changes in thinking and changes in emotion and changes in behavior. But, you know, that's pretty broad. Others consider the definition of mental disorder to be conditions involving problematic thinking or behavior. So, you know, I would say many people consider under this definition that meant that racism, you know, is a mental is a is a problematic way of thinking and a problematic way of behaving. So, you know, maybe maybe we should consider a disorder in that way. Uh, 
Another definition of mental disorder is that it's a psychological condition that causes distress or problems. You know, and, and again, as the people with, on the other side of the fence would say, being a racist cause, causes you distress in your life and causes distress in other people. Therefore, it should be you know, considered a disorder. But it's weird because we lump a lot of different things into one basket called, quote-unquote, mental disorders. You know, in the DSM, we have schizophrenia, which, which I would say is one of the most legitimate, quote-unquote, mental disorders. But, you know, we also have caffeine addiction in the DSM. You know, caffeine addiction is a mental illness. I mean, we don't typically use the word mental illness. We typically use disorder. But, you know, for many, it's the same. For many, it's different. But anyway, the point is, is that you have schizophrenia, which we understand to be a mental disorder. But we also have caffeine addiction as a mental disorder. We also, we also have adjustment disorders, like, you know, having a difficult time adjusting to a new job. That's a mental disorder. And so, you know, it's we lump a lot of different things together into this thing called mental disorder. And so, uh, you know, should racism be included in that? Okay. So if, if racism is, so let's just, assume, let's just go down the road of saying that racism could be considered a mental disorder. Incidentally for myself, as I, at first I'll just tell you my journey on this. When I first started looking in the literature, I was like, come on, Racism, mental disorder, that's silly. You know, it's, it's a belief system. It's a problem. But you can't consider it like a mental illness. But the further I started looking into the points, I was like, eh, actually, you know, I could see it maybe because, you know, it, I, I, I could imagine, I would be on board if they said, look, there are certain brands of racism that we should consider a mental disorder. Now, uh, we should probably just not go down that road because politically it would just be a lightning rod for a whole bunch of ridiculousness. Um, but on the other hand, you know, maybe we should consider ourselves to be helpers uh, for all sorts of problems, including racism. Um, but do we need to make a disorder out of racism in order to do that? I don't know. So for me, unless someone can really convince me otherwise, I would say, Let's leave it out of the DSM. But that's just me, you know. Let, let me know how you think. Okay, but let's say, you know, what if racism was considered a mental disorder? What would be the criteria, right? Well, many researchers have, have tried to answer this question, and they usually expand the issue beyond racism. They don't, they, they don't just say racist. They, they, they include the entire field of study about out-group and in-group phenomena, you know, we all identify with particular in-groups, and we all identify that there are groups of people who are outside of us, and those are called out-groups. For example, I'm a Seattleite, and therefore I consider myself to be a part of the Seattleite in-group. And people from Portland, Oregon, they are the out-group. And if I was in a group of other Seattleites, we might make fun of people from Portland because they are considered to be the out-group and people tend to reject people in outgroups. Now, you know, no offense to my Portland listeners, you know, love you. Uh, I love Portland. It's a great place. <laughs> um, but Seattleites, you know, and Portlanders, they'll make fun of each other because of in-group, out-group stuff. So, you know, racism is the same way, but it, you can also sexism and, and I don't know, all, all the different isms, ageism. Okay, so... 
they, uh, these people have put forward the following disorder. They call it pathological bias. So it's not just relegated to racism. It includes any in-group, out-group phenomena. So pathological bias disorder. So the criteria are, the proposed criteria are, a pervasive pattern emergent by early childhood and present in a variety of contexts as indicated by one or more of the following. Uh, number one, intrusive ideation concerning outgroup persons. Intrusive ideation concerning outgroup persons. So, in other words, you have intrusive thoughts. So, thoughts that you're not consciously trying to think about, but, but thoughts that pop into your head about outgroup people. You know, you, you're walking down the street, you see a black man, and you have this thought pop into your head like, oh, he's a criminal. Whereas with with non-black people, you don't have that intrusive thought. Number two, aversive arousal concerning outgroup ideation and intergroup contact. So in other words, you, when you're, you know, a, a white person walks into a bar and the, and everyone in the bar is a black man and they instantly have, um, you know, uh, distress or anxiety or some kind of, some kind of difficult feeling inside of them because that happened, you know. Uh, that's you know perhaps not the best example, but I hope you get what I'm saying. Number three, uh, relational disturbance of intergroup contact. Relational disturbance of intergroup contact. So, in other words, there's a relational problem. You are not as nice. You are a little hostile. You have microaggressions or something. Okay. B. Uh, so so that's the pervasive pattern. One or more of the following. One of those three. Okay, let's go on to proposed criteria B. The presence during the past six months of three or more of the following. Three or more of the following. Number one, generalized fear or perceived threat of outgroup persons. Number two, hostility or rage response towards outgroup persons. Number three, expressed victimization by outgroup persons without corroborating evidence or actual harm victimization. So this one's a little interesting. So expressed victimization. So the so this criteria criterion is referring to when people are saying like, well, you know, Muslims have harmed me, that kind of thing. When in fact, there's no corroborating evidence that Muslims have harmed them. Number four, aversive ideation or fearful preoccupation concerning outgroup persons. So just a lot of very rejecting, angry, racist thoughts or very fearful uh, preoccupation concerning an outgroup person. And again, I keep using racism, but it could be sexist. It could be transphobia, heterophobia, um, you know, homophobia, heterosexism. Uh, number six, number five, express victimization. Okay. Uh, number six, emotional lability marked by transient hostility, secondary to benign intergroup contact. <laughs> So, you know, just emotional uh, changes and, and a little, at least a little bit of hostility at, secondary to benign intergroup contact. So in the example, white guy walking down the street sees a black man and there's no, there's no it's a benign intergroup contact, but you have this hostility or an emotional reaction to it. Number seven, marked aversive preoccupation with outgroup persons. So, and you'll, this one I really like that they included because often I find that when someone 
is biased towards and towards a, a group of people, they seem particularly fixated on it. You know, anti-Semitic people are you know frequently talking about Jewish people, even though it you know it's not relevant to their life very often. And so you'll it's just interesting to see. Number eight, panic and anxiety secondary to benign contact experiences without group persons. So again, just anxiety when you're just merely having a, a minor interaction with an outgroup person. Um, you know, uh, someone goes to Capitol Hill and sees a, a gay person, you know, someone who has a, a rainbow flag, and they panic as a result. Number nine, endorsement of beliefs or values promoting intergroup hostility and conflict. So th- this, you know, this person would say, well, everyone knows that Christians and Muslims can't get along, or everyone knows that Muslims are only here to change us to Sharia law or something. You know, they're just here to take over or something like that. Number 10, endorsement of violence as a solution to intergroup problems. So in other words, someone who's like, well, you know, you just got to put them down. You got to whip them or you got to you gotta punch them in the face or you got to kill them all or something, you know, something like that. Number 11, Panic and anxiety secondary to benign contact experiences without group persons. Wait, I thought we already had that one. That is a duplicate. (laughs) Interesting. They had a typo in their criteria. Um, Okay, number 12. Interpersonal provocation of outgroup persons secondary to benign contact experiences. Interpersonal provocation. So in other words, they will provoke the other person because of their outgroup bias. Number 13, reported avoidance of or retreat from outgroup persons secondary to benign contact. So you're walking down the street and you see a black person and you move to the other side of the street. Just you're trying to you're just trying to avoid and retreat even though there's, you know, there's nothing wrong. There's nothing you need to be worried about. Okay. So they go on to describe other criteria, but they're not as interesting to this conversation. So, so the, those are the proposed criteria uh, with a couple, with at least one typo. But um, it's interesting, you know, a a intrusive ideation. I find that to be interesting because when we're talking about compulsions like OCD, we we'll, we'll talk about that intrusive ideation or someone who is depressed and has intrusive ideation about. Uh, suicide, or someone who's uh, borderline personality disorder, and they have intrusive thoughts that they're going to be betrayed or rejected. And it's interesting to look at racism or sexism or ageism or ableism as intrusive ideation, right? You have this semi-delusional thought that pops into your head about a different group of people that really has no basis in reality, in the same way that when you are uh, when you have a compulsion and you have an intrusive thought of you better count everything in the room you know that's an in, it's it doesn't it's not connected to reality it's it's like it, there's that you don't have to do that but it it feels very com, you know compulsory you you really have to do it well racism and sexism and all the other isms are are similar to that right they they pop into a person's head and they compel you and there's no evidence that you need to do that. Uh, it's interesting to look at it that way. I still don't think it should be considered a mental disorder, but when they put it in this way, it's, it's interesting. It, in some ways, it's almost like a PTSD reaction. We, 
for instance, when we are, I don't know, uh, you know, we're mugged by five men, five white guys in, in the alley or something. And then from then, from then on forth, whenever we go into public and we run into groups of men, we have, we have thought like we have intrusive thoughts like, Oh, you know, they're up to no good. They're going to get me. That person is a terrible person. I got to run away from them. I'll change the other side of the street. And so in some ways it's, it's kind of like PTSD and there's discussion around that, that it, it has for some people that, that kind of flavor to it. All right. Um, there's a number of subtypes that have been proposed and they're basically different types of personality disorders. For instance, uh, the first subtype of of this uh, pathological bias disorder is the avoidance subtype. These people avoid the outgroup people, and they might even avoid learning about the outgroup people. They feel distress as they are exposed to the outgroup, so they avoid it. For example, I know some cisgender liberals who act who actively avoid talking about trans people. You know, they're they're cisgender. And they're liberals, and they they care about marginalized groups of people, but uh, and they're trying to be nice to outgroups, but they are terrified and confused about trans people, and they feel distress when they are exposed to this outgroup. So this sort of thing we might call the avoidant subtype. Now I'm not saying all these people should be considered to have a mental disorder, but I hope you get my point. All right, uh, before going on to the other subtypes, let's take a break. All right, back from the break, let's go on to the paranoid subtype of the, um, I keep forgetting, the pathological bias disorder proposed criteria. Pathological bias. So basically like racism, sexism disorder. Uh, so we talked about the avoidant subtype. Another subtype is the paranoid subtype. This outgroup is characterized by, they have an outgroup bias that is not socially learned. It's, and it's not the result of trauma. They just have a psychopathology that compels them to firmly believe that the outgroup people are out to get them. They, and they may or may not even have contact with the outgroup. For example, I listened to a recent episode of This American Life, and there is this tiny community in rural Alaska that is completely paranoid about Muslim, Muslim Im- immigrants. Uh, if, it's a fascinating, I think it's this American life. You should really listen to it. <laughs> if it's this America, there's a huge debate happening in this town about how to approach immigration in their town, even though they have zero immigrants in their community. <laughs> now, of course, these people have been brainwashed by Fox news, but when I listen to interviews with these people in this community, it seemed to me that their paranoia about Muslims was deeper than that, deeper than the brainwashing. It seemed to me that their paranoia was completely independent from reality so maybe not the best example, but, but that's what came to mind when I learned about this subtype. Another example would be if someone was actually suffering from a paranoid delusion and just happened to focus on a particular outgroup, and their beliefs were completely impervious to evidence, similar to the way someone might be paranoid about aliens reading their minds, right? Someone could absolutely have a paranoid delusion about an outgroup, right? All right. The narcissist subgroup. So we had the avoidant, we had the paranoid, and we have the narcissist. This is a form of, of sort of entitlement, an in-group entitlement. They believe that they're superior and they believe that their in-group is superior and entitled. 
And these people can come can become extremely angry when they feel as though their entitlement is not being honored by others. They have trouble controlling their impulses because they can get so angry. These people are overtly hostile toward the outgroup. You see this sort of thing on the news, but I have treated people like this before. I don't usually get these sorts of clients, but I have worked with a few. They, basically, their narcissistic personality disorder is wrapped up in a lot of racism. It, it seemed to me, in my opinion, that they started out as having narcissistic personality disorder, meaning that as a child, as a young child, they had early abuse and mistreatment that you know, planted the seeds of later narcissistic personality. And then their narcissistic personality decided to focus on race as the battleground for their inner narcissistic struggles. I hope that makes sense. Okay, so the last subgroup is antisocial. These people are extremely hostile and aggressive toward outgroup people, similar to the way antisocial personality disorder people are hostile and aggressive toward people who don't um, you know, appease them or towards people who get in their way. Antisocial, uh, uh, what am I, what's this disorder called again? Pathological bias disorder. So antisocial pathological bias disorder people, they have a conscious hostile worldview about the outgroup and they are prone to getting into altercations and open conflicts with the outgroup and they don't apologize for it because they don't care about the outgroup. They don't have empathy for the outgroup. They, they might even see the outgroup as being subhuman, you know, some soldier in Afghanistan looking at Af- Afghanistan, Afghani people and seeing them as subhuman is not actual humans. All right, so let's conclude with some research here. What, is the, what, is, what can research? Well, there's, a, there's, a, there's a, a really a lot of research pertaining to what we're talking about right now, but just some of the highlights is that research shows that outgroup hostility is associated with a number of things, which is interesting. So outgroup, hostil- outgroup hostility is associated with problems keeping a job. That's interesting, right? So problems keeping a job. So if, you, if someone has problems keeping a job, they're more likely to have outgroup hostility, such as racism. Now, are both, it's, there's, that's not a causal linkage. They could just be associated and not causally linked, but you know, it's interesting. It's also, outgroup hostility is also associated with conflict in their primary relationship. So conflict in their marriage, right? It's also associated with economic poverty as a child, which is interesting. So very specific, right? So you could be rich as, a, as an adult, but if you were poor as a child, then you are more likely to have outgroup hostility. You know, it's interesting. Why would that be? It's also associated with growing up in a violent community, which kind of makes sense, right? If you grew up in a violent community, then the chance that you're going to have outgroup hostility is increased, probably because there's so much tension in those communities about different groups of people that you're going to adopt those belief systems. Research also shows that outgroup hostility is associated with being a victim of a physical assault. So, so just merely being a victim of a physical assault can produce outgroup hostility. Uh, again, these aren't causal linkages, but um, so you know it could be that because of your outgroup hostility, then you're, you have an you have an increased chance of being physically assaulted, or vice versa. Hard to tell. Outgroup bias has been found to be associated with personality disorders. 
So if you have a personality disorder, you're more likely to have outgroup bias, such as increased sexism or racism. Uh, neuro people, brain scientists, are also looking at the possibility that some people have brains that are more likely to encode stereotypes than other people. So, you know, we, we're, we're pattern-making animals. We make patterns of things. And so maybe some people tend to make more patterns out of their world and therefore are more prone to stereotyping. Evolutionary psychologists, they will hypothesize that we evolved a tendency to be afraid of people who are unfamiliar with, unfamiliar with us or who are from a different gene pool. And this is the basis of xenophobia. And this makes some sense to me, but there's evidence that this is not the case. There's, there's evidence that we learn as young children that we are supposed to fear and hate outgroups. And there's evidence that if we're not taught this at an early age, that we actually don't have xenophobia. But it's difficult to study. Um, also, research shows that racism is associated with anxiety disorders, which is interesting. Researchers have looked at how the amygdala might play a role in racism. In other words, it seems as though uh, people who are generally afraid and fearful and have general anxiety, they tend to develop more outgroup bias, presumably because they are afraid of the outgroup, right? This makes sense to me. And it provides a very clear way to alleviate racism and, and outgroup bias in our society. You know, it, it, if we understand that racism and outgroup bias is, for many people, the result of fear and fear of the outgroup, you know, that's why we call it homophobia, right? Fear of uh, particular groups of people. It, it makes it, it gives us a very clear path to treat this. You know, we need to take rural white Americans and make them hang out with Muslims and hang out with gay people and hang out with trans people and hang out with Mexicans and African-Americans and so on. You know, there are studies that demonstrate that this works. It's really simple. But of course, our government would rather spend money on the military, on the border wall and on prosecuting drug crimes than actually trying to fix our problems. But that's a discussion for another day. All right. So that's the discussion on is racism or path or bias, is it a mental disorder? And I, again, at first I was like, that's absurd. But as we get more into it, I'm like, huh, well, maybe. Tell me what you think. You can email me at contact at psychology in Seattle. That's contact at psychology in Seattle.com. Contact at psychology in Seattle.com. All right, everyone, please take care of yourself because you deserve it.